Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There is arguably no more well-known address in all of London than one in which its most famous resident never actually existed. I'm of course talking about 221B Baker Street, the fictional home of Sherlock Holmes. In fact, the address itself did not exist at all when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle first conceived it. According to the original stories, the fictional detective lived at the Baker Street address between 1881 and 1904. But that address didn't actually exist in 1887 when Doyle published the very first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, in Beaton's Christmas Annual. Back then, Baker Street's addresses only went up to the 100s. But the character of Sherlock Holmes has proven so popular and so timeless that the city actually renumbered the street in order to incorporate a real 221B Baker Street. And that very same address is now the home of the official Sherlock Holmes Museum, which was opened in 1990 by the Sherlock Holmes International Society. If that's not confusing enough, whereas the actual address of the museum is now 221B, the real, true address of the museum is 239 Baker Street. But since the 1930s, so many fan letters were pouring into the city addressed to 221B that Westminster eventually gave in and allowed a special plaque to be put up on the front of the building declaring the address as 221B. Which is all just a way of showing you the enduring power and influence of the character of Sherlock Holmes. There are only a handful of fictional characters throughout history who have had such a lasting influence on society. Several decades ago, a 13-year-old boy named Richard Lancelin Green became so enamored of Sherlock Holmes that he actually built himself a replica of the great detective's famous flat in his family home. It was an obsession that would last him a lifetime. Green would grow up to become the world's foremost expert on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. And when he was found dead with a garrote wrapped around his throat, he left behind a mystery that would have baffled even the world's greatest detective. I'm Nate Hale, and the game is afoot. And this is The Conspirators. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't invent the modern detective story. No, that honor likely goes to Edgar Allan Poe, who, years earlier, created his own brilliant master of deduction, C. Auguste Dupin. But Sherlock Holmes caught on in the public's imagination in a way that few other literary characters ever have. Beyond the original series of short stories and novels Doyle himself published about Holmes, there have been countless Holmes stories written by other people, movies, television shows, comic books, even video games, all about this one character. Richard Lancelin Green was born on July 10, 1953. He was the youngest of three children. His father, Roger Lancelin Green, was a best-selling children's author who published several books about heroic characters from history, 
like Robin Hood, King Arthur, and the Norse gods. He was also a close friend of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. In fact, he was actually the person who suggested the title The Chronicles of Narnia to Lewis back in the 1940s. Although the father spent a lifetime writing about heroic epics of a more medieval and fantastic nature, his youngest son Richard became enamored with another heroic character of a different sort. A trim, sharp-featured detective with a brilliant, analytical mind. Richard was a pudgy young man who wore tinted glasses to hide that he was blind in one eye from a childhood accident. He spent his youth reading the dusty volumes in his father's library, and when he was 11, he came across Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. It was love at first sight. Richard was fascinated by the fictional detective, with his almost clairvoyant ability to deduce an individual's life story just by observing them. Holmes became a role model for Richard Green. He spent much of his youth honing his own observational skills in an attempt to train himself to make the same sort of clever deductions Holmes would about everyone he met. Some of the famous detective's rules, like never trust general impressions, but concentrate yourself upon details, became a personal mantra to Green. When Richard was 13 years old, he dragged an assortment of artifacts he collected from local junk shops up into the attic of his family home, Polton Hall. The attic had a reputation as being haunted by the spirit of a woman who had been imprisoned and died up there hundreds of years before. But Richard Green believed in logic, like his hero, and he didn't believe in ghosts. Green constructed for himself an impressive replica of Sherlock Holmes's flat at 221B Baker Street, filling the attic with items that matched precise details mentioned in Doyle's stories, including a Persian slipper filled with tobacco, a stack of unpaid bills on the mantle he'd stabbed through with a knife, a preserved snake, and a brass microscope. The display was so impressive that it first caught the attention of the local newspapers who reported on it. Then later, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, who inducted Richard as its youngest member. He went on to earn a degree in English from Oxford, and for the next 40 years he built on his childhood fascination with Sherlock Holmes and turned it into a career. When he grew up, he gained a reputation as the world's foremost expert on Holmes and Doyle. He once made a name for himself by uncovering the truth about a mysterious short story, The Case of the Man Who Is Wanted, which was sometimes questioned as being either a forgery or perhaps a lost story written by Conan Doyle himself. Green proved that neither was true, and in fact the story was a piece of Holmes fan fiction sent to Doyle by its true author, an architect named Arthur Whitaker who had sent it to Doyle hoping to collaborate on a longer work. With John Michael Gibson, he co-edited the first comprehensive bibliography of Arthur Conan Doyle. He also co-edited with Gibson several volumes of Doyle's writings that had never before been collected. Green also published several books on his own, including the uncollected Sherlock Holmes and an anthology of Doyle's other non-Holmes-related writing. Later in life, Green began working on what he planned to be his magnum opus, a comprehensive three-volume biography of Conan Doyle. But before he could complete his masterpiece, Green needed to solve the case of the missing papers. After Arthur Conan Doyle died in 1930, he left behind a substantial collection of unpublished letters, diary entries, and manuscripts. But not long after the author's death, this treasure trove of his writings mysteriously vanished. If found, some estimates claimed that those papers would be worth nearly $4 million. But besides being missing, 
there was one other problem, too. Somewhere along the lines, rumors of a curse began to surround these mysterious papers and anyone who looked for them. Green knew that those papers were absolutely essential to anyone wanting to write Doyle's definitive biography. He had already dug deep into aspects of Doyle's life the author had wanted to keep private about himself. Most notably that Doyle's father had been an epileptic, who had eventually sunk into a deep depression and turned to alcohol to soothe his disturbed psyche. He was eventually confined to an insane asylum. In an early draft of the story The Surgeon of Gaster Fall, Doyle wrote of a son who locks his insane father away in a cage. Green speculated that this was his way of dealing with his own father's incarceration. Perhaps he'd even been the one to commit his father to the asylum, and he was feeling guilty about it. But despite how much he'd been able to learn about Doyle, Green knew he needed those papers to complete his biography. There were just too many things about the man that remained a mystery. Without them, you'd be left with an incomplete portrait of the man and his work. Doyle was a puzzle that Green felt he needed to solve. He was a contradiction. A medical doctor by trade, a man of science. But later in life, after the death of his beloved wife, he got swept up into the spiritualist movement that had entranced much of high society. In 1920, Conan Doyle fell hook, line, and sinker for a famous series of hoax photographs known as the Cottingley Fairies. In those photos, two young girls named Elsie Wright and her cousin Frances Griffiths photographed themselves playing with some winged fairies they claimed they met in the woods. The fairies in the photographs were later proven to be nothing more than paper cutouts, but long before the hoax was revealed, Conan Doyle wrote enthusiastically about them. How could a man with a rational and brilliant mind like Conan Doyle's ever fall for so flagrant of a hoax? Then there was the problem of Holmes himself. The character made Conan Doyle wealthy and famous. But over time, Doyle grew resentful that his own creation had overshadowed his other literary works. His other books and stories were the serious writing he wanted to be remembered for, not this know-it-all detective he'd created on a lark. Doyle would eventually grow so resentful of Holmes that he actually killed him off in one short story. The public outcry that followed was so overwhelming that Doyle was forced to bring Sherlock Holmes back to life. And he continued writing about him for years after. What must Doyle have thought to be so trapped into writing his most famous character? These were just some of the many things Green needed to get to the bottom of for his biography. He felt certain many of the answers he sought were in the missing papers. Many scholars believed the papers had likely either been discarded or destroyed. Green believed otherwise, though. After he launched his investigation, Green learned that one of Conan Doyle's five children, Adrian, had gotten hold of the papers and with his other heirs' agreement, stashed them in a locked chateau that he owned in Switzerland. Green also learned that Adrian kept some of those papers without his siblings' knowledge, hoping to sell them off to private collectors. But Adrian died of a heart attack while he was still putting together this scheme thus giving rise to the legends about a curse. After Adrian's death, the papers vanished again, and Green ran into roadblock after roadblock trying to track them down. He interviewed many of Doyle's heirs and others who might have knowledge of the paper's whereabouts. This went on for years until finally Green found his way to the home of Jean Conan Doyle, the youngest of the author's children. By the time Green got to know her, Jean Doyle was in her late 60s, Despite being relatively short in stature, Jean Doyle proved to be an imposing figure, silver-haired and very proper with a forceful personality. 
Her own father had written about her tremendous will when she was only five years old. And that will had remained with her throughout her life. She was a bit of a shining star among the Doyle children. Her brother Adrian had been kicked out of the British Navy for insubordination. Her other brother Dennis had a reputation as a playboy who managed to avoid serving in World War II. But Jean, on the other hand, had become an officer in the Royal Air Force and was honored in 1963 as a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Jean Doyle and Richard Green hit it off immediately, and they became fast friends. She was fiercely protective of her father's literary legacy. And in Richard Green, she felt she'd found something of a kindred spirit. She invited him back to her home several times, and there, beneath the walrus mustache portrait of her father that hung over the fireplace, Jean shared her memories and family photographs. Once, Green told friends that during one of his visits, Jean had let him peek inside some boxes that had been stored in a London solicitor's office. What he saw blew his mind. Inside those boxes were the missing papers he'd been searching everywhere for. Green couldn't believe his eyes. Jean Doyle only let him glimpse the papers for a brief moment, though. Jean told him that she couldn't allow him to read them yet, and that she planned on bequeathing them to the British Library after her death, so that scholars everywhere could study them. Jean Doyle died in 1997. Green eagerly awaited the announcement that the papers had been released to the public. Only that announcement never came. Then in March 2004, Green was shocked when he opened the Sunday Times of London, and read that a massive archive of lost Doyle papers were to be sold at Christie's auction house, where it was expected they would fetch millions of dollars from the sale. The papers had been brought to Christie's by three of Conan Doyle's distant relatives. Green couldn't believe what he was reading. Rather than being donated to the British Library as he expected they would be, the papers were expected to be sold to private collectors who might scatter them across the globe and never allow the public to see them ever again. Green hurried to Christie's to confirm what he already dreaded in his heart. Later, he told friends that he was certain that many of the papers he got to inspect at the auction house were the same ones he caught a glimpse of in Jean Doyle's possession a few years earlier. The papers, he concluded, were stolen. And not only that, he told his friends and family, but he could prove it. Keep in mind, Green had a veritable army on his side, in the form of the thousands of Sherlock Holmes fans with whom he was acquainted worldwide. He first reached out to members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, which was just one of the hundreds of such fan clubs around the world. It didn't hurt that he had once been in charge of the group. He alerted Sherlockians across two continents about what he believed about the stolen papers, including members of the American Baker Street Irregulars. The Baker Street Irregulars were an invitation-only group formed in 1934 that was named after the group of street urchins Holmes employed to gather information. He also contacted another group known as the Doyleans, a group of literary scholars devoted to the author. The Doyleans tended to separate themselves from the so-called Sherlockians because the Sherlockians were prone to ignore the author and focus their attention on the character, treating him as if he were a real flesh-and-blood detective. In fact, at the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, many Sherlockians had come up with a theory about Holmes they called the Great Game, in which it was postulated that the true author of the stories was not Conan Doyle, but Holmes's faithful companion, Dr. Watson. At society meetings, people would often refer to Doyle as Watson's literary agent. The Doyleans, on the other hand, tended to take a more grounded approach. They focused their attention on the author himself and his place in the literary community. 
They also freely acknowledged that Holmes was, in fact, a fictional character, not flesh and blood. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Green spread the word about the impending sale to anyone and everyone who would listen. He was determined to block the sale at any cost. As proof, he presented to people what he considered to be the most damning piece of evidence, Jean Doyle's own will, in which she clearly stated her plans to donate all her late father's original papers to the British Library. Green and many of his allies took their case all the way to members of Parliament in order to prevent the sale from happening. As Green pushed forth with his crusade, he began to hint to his sister Priscilla West that peculiar events were happening in his life. Someone had begun threatening him, he said, and he was scared. Later he sent her a cryptic message containing three phone numbers with a note reading, Keep these numbers safe. He also alerted a reporter from the London Times that he feared that something bad might happen to him in the near future. On Friday, March 26, 2004, Green had dinner with an old friend named Lawrence Keane. He told Keane that there was a mysterious American who was, quote, trying to bring him down. When the two men left the restaurant, Green kept peering over his shoulder and soon pointed out a car behind them and said he thought they were being followed. Later that night, Priscilla West telephoned her brother and got his answering machine. She called him again several times the next morning, but he never picked up the phone. Worried, she went to her brother's house and pounded on the door, but no one answered. Priscilla called the police, who broke open the door. Downstairs, they found Green's body lying on his bed. He was surrounded by his collection of Sherlock Holmes memorabilia and several stuffed animals. There was also a partially empty gin bottle and a wooden spoon. A shoelace was wrapped tightly around Green's throat. He'd been garroted. The coroner, Dr. Paul Knappman, would go on to rule that there was not enough evidence to rule anything in or out in the strange death could have been suicide, murder, or even a sexual act gone wrong. Now, if Sherlock Holmes had been real, it's possible he could have taken one look around the scene and come up with the answer instantly. But this wasn't the case in the death of Richard Lancelin Green. The best investigators were able to determine was that anything could have happened. Police found no sign of forced entry into the man's home. There was also no suicide note discovered. The president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences, Colin Barry, testified to the coroner how unusual he thought the death was. In his 30-year career, he had only seen one suicide by garrote. Self-garroting is extremely difficult to do. In most cases, the individual passes out from lack of oxygen before they actually suffocate to death. It was doubly unusual in this particular instance because the cord used was a shoelace rather than any sort of rope. Green's friend and frequent collaborator John Gibson told reporters that he was likely the last person to ever speak to him. His phone records showed that Green had called him several times in the week before his death, with the last call coming only a few hours before the man's body was discovered. But the police never questioned Gibson, and therefore never requested his phone records either. During one of their last conversations, Green expressed to Gibson that he feared for his life. At the time, Gibson didn't take the threat seriously. 
He tried to calm his friend down, and he suggested that Green not answer the door unless he was absolutely certain he knew who was there. Gibson said that he heard about Green's fears that a mysterious American was out to get him. He also said that at one point he had phoned Green's house, only to hear an odd greeting on the man's answering machine. It was an American voice saying, Sorry, not available. Gibson thought he must have dialed the wrong number, so he tried it again. And once again, he heard the same recorded message. Green's sister had heard the same message when she tried to phone her brother on the day of his death. This was what ultimately worried her enough to rush over to his house the day she discovered his body. According to Gibson, the police never conducted any forensic tests or looked for fingerprints at the scene. Within hours of Green's death becoming news, Sherlockians around the world jumped at the chance to investigate the case. Rampant speculation spread throughout Sherlock-centric message boards about every detail of Green's life and death. Everything from how easy or difficult it was to garrot oneself to wild speculation that the Doyle curse had struck again. One British tabloid seized on the story of the cursed papers and put out the headline, Curse of Conan Doyle Strikes Holmes Expert. Priscilla West testified at the coroner's inquest that her brother had no history of depression. Green's physician testified that he had not treated his patient for any illnesses in several years either. To the best of anyone's knowledge, nothing had been taken from Green's home, He had an extremely valuable collection of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle books and memorabilia, yet none of it appeared to be missing. Owen Dudley Edwards, a professor at the University of Edinburgh, Conan Doyle scholar and close personal friend of Richard Green, believed his friend was murdered. He had worked with Richard Green to block the auction of the lost papers, and he felt that this was the reason Green had been killed. Edwards knew all about the theories that Green had died accidentally as part of some sexual practice or that he had committed suicide. But to Edwards, murder was the most obvious answer. He pointed out to reporters that Green had made plans with another friend for a holiday to Italy the following week. He was also convinced that Green, of all people, would have left behind a suicide note. Green was a fastidious note-taker who wrote everything down. It didn't make sense to Edwards that Green wouldn't have taken the time to write down this final statement. Other details about the man's death didn't seem to add up either. He'd been garroted with a shoelace, yet he always wore slip-on shoes. The nearly empty bottle of gin seemed out of place as well. Green had drunk wine at dinner earlier in the evening, and consuming a quantity of gin after would have been completely out of character for him. Then there was the mysterious American. Although the man's true identity has never been officially revealed, some people believe that the man is John Lellenberg, a political strategy analyst from Washington, D.C., At the time of Green's death, Lellenberg was working in the office of Donald Rumsfeld. Lellenberg is a respected Holmes scholar in his own right, and he actually collaborated with Green on a number of articles until the two men had a falling out in the mid-1990s. Some of Green's friends claim that Lellenberg had managed to turn Jean Doyle against him in her final days. A reporter named David Gran, writing for The New Yorker, ultimately came to the conclusion that this falling out might have been at the heart of what he really believed happened. Namely, that Green had committed suicide in such a manner that he was attempting to frame his former friend from America. Green's friend John Gibson agrees. He feels suicide is the most likely solution to his friend's death. One of the most famous Sherlock Holmes quotes states that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. In the death of Richard Lancelin Green, some of his friends believe that the only possible answer 
is that Green staged his suicide to look like murder in order to implicate an innocent man. Gibson believes that Green had been planning this for weeks, setting up false clues like the strange answering machine message and dropping hints to friends and family that someone was out to get him. If you recall the three phone numbers Green left with his sister telling her to guard them with her life, well, they didn't seem all that mysterious once someone tried to call them. Two of them were reporters Green had spoken to about the auction, and the third was someone at Christie's auction house. Gibson thinks that toward the end of her life, Jean Doyle had a change of heart about what would happen to her father's papers. Instead of donating them, she planned on giving them to some of the other heirs. Learning this drove Green into a deep depression. Some of his colleagues recounted stories in which Green expressed dismay over his feelings that he'd wasted his life studying Conan Doyle. Some people recounted conversations they'd had with Green in which he referred to Doyle as a second-rate writer with only one pretty good idea. Gibson points to one Holmes story in particular as evidence that Green's death was just an elaborate ruse to make people think he'd been murdered. In the story The Problem of Thor Bridge, a wife is found dead on a bridge shot in the head at point-blank range. Although all the evidence points to the governess with whom the woman's husband had been having an affair, Holmes proved that the woman really killed herself in order to frame the adulteress. David Graham believes that Green must have felt a similar rage at his American colleague, after blaming him for the loss of the archive he so desperately sought. But when the auction finally occurred, it revealed what may be the greatest twist in the case yet. After the auction was over, it was revealed that Jean Doyle had made a last-minute change to her will while she was on her deathbed, in which she split the literary archive between herself and three heirs of her ex-sister-in-law. Perhaps the greatest irony of all is that it turned out that Jean Doyle had kept the most important papers for herself, in order to leave them to the British Library. It turns out that if Green had lived, he would have been able to complete his biography the way he wanted after all. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Special thanks need to go out to my newest Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Mark, Tammy, Jake, Kelly, Nina, Cappy, Mike, Jody, Selena, Aaron, and Jude for all your support. Each of my Patreon supporters are entitled to all sorts of different rewards depending on their level, including stickers, thank you cards, magnets, t-shirts, and our Patreon-only exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Your support and constant encouragement is what keeps this show going. Just a reminder in case you didn't catch my announcement at the end of last week's episode, I've decided to switch back to my original plan of releasing new episodes of my regular show every two weeks. This will allow me more time for research, writing, and everything else that goes into producing this show. As always, I encourage you to rate and review us on Apple's podcasts. If you're not using iTunes, not to worry. We're also available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, and we'll be back in two weeks.